morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. It's my privilege always to worship with you and, uh, and to call myself your pastor. God bless you. Uh, all of you at the Franklin campus, all of you in the overflow this morning, God bless you. Uh, let's worship the Lord together. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Some time ago, last fall, I was uh, in my own private devotions. I ran across this scripture, probably a scripture I'd read before, probably a scripture I'd read several times. Uh, but this time it grabbed me. There's a particular detail in this scripture that, that really got under my skin. I just couldn't make any sense of it. And uh, when that happens, I tend to do the stupid thing. I put it in my preaching plan. If there's a scripture I don't understand, something that, uh, that is uh, just simply a puzzle to me, I'll put it in my preaching plan several months out, and that will force me to struggle with it and force me to make sense of it. And, and that's what I've done today. Exodus chapter 24, as it turns out, is a pivotal, pivotal uh, passage in the Old Testament and important for us to understand. It's important because of a fundamental principle in the Old Testament and in Scripture itself. From Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, um, this is a fundamental principle about God, a fundamental principle in our worship, and it's something you've probably heard and always understood, and it's simply this, and the words are on the screen here. You may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. That's God speaking there. Fundamental principle, we can't see God. No one can see God and, and live. All through the Old Testament, that is just a simple fact. God in his glory, God in his perfection and holiness, a human being cannot look upon him and live. That's God speaking to Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses says, God, let me see your glory. Let me see you. And God says, no one. No one can see my face and live. But with that in mind, Exodus 24, the passage that, uh, that I read some months ago, it comes to a point where it says specifically that they see God. It says plainly and clearly they see him and yet they live. And this is what I want us to figure out today. Figure out this scripture with me. Exodus chapter 24, we are going to begin with verse 1. Uh, follow along. This is good stuff from Exodus chapter 24. Then the Lord instructed Moses, come up here to me and bring along Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of Israel's elders. All of you must worship from a distance. Only Moses is allowed to come near to the Lord. Now stop. We are two months after the exodus, after the children of Israel have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. It's two months later. They are at the very foot of Mount Sinai. God is on the mountain. And Moses has been going up and down, receiving the law, receiving the Ten Commandments. And now something very important is about to happen. He calls for Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of Israel. Israel's elders. Everyone is to worship from a distance. Moses is allowed to come near to the Lord. The others must not come near, and none of the other people are allowed to climb up the mountain with him. Verse 3, then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all of the law of God now. Moses went down to the people, repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice. Read this with me. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then verse 4. Then Moses carefully wrote down all of the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. 
He also set up 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent some of the young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and to sacrifice bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses drained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it all over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. How? How did they do that? How did they do that? Ever been in love? Let me see your hand. Been in love? Anybody in love? Yeah. Have you ever been almost in love, but you start kind of, what's going on there? Watch it now. You're married. You start falling in love, but then you start holding back because you're not exactly sure if the other person feels the same way. You ever done that? Let me see your hand. You ever done that? You're kind of in love, but it really gets risky because you don't want to stick your neck out and say, I, I think I love you, and the other person may not even like you. It's an awkward stage in a relationship, but these days, that stage has a very particular label. It's called DTR. Are you familiar with those letters? What DTR, those letters stand for in relationships these days? Do you know? Y'all get out much? DTR stands for define, determine the relationship. Frank knows, man. Define, determine the relationship. In every relationship, there is that moment when you got to have the talk. You got to DTR. You've got to figure out what are we? You know what I'm talking about? The best example I can give you is Byron and Susie Lucas. Do y'all remember back in the day when Byron Lucas and Susie High used to come to church here on Wednesday night and, and they weren't married? And at that point they weren't even dating, but none of us knew what they were. Because they just showed up on Wednesday night and they sat together and they were so cute. They had couple written all over them. They had to be a couple, but we didn't know. Byron came sliding in in his sexy sweater vest and his, and his little tin stash. Susie comes in all smiling. They sit together. They sit on top of each other, man, in church while I'm preaching. I assume they're a couple. Didn't you all assume they were a couple? Well, one Wednesday night they were leaving, and, and, and again, I didn't know Byron and Susie very well, but as they were walking out, I just said, listen, are you guys dating? Awkward. <laughs> Awkward. I said, are you guys dating? I mean, Byron ran to the car like a scalded dog. He <laughs> ran. Susie just kind of smiled and looked up and looked down, and then she walked off. I mean, awkward. Obviously, they had never DTR'd. 
You understand? They had never talked about it. They had never determined their relationship. And all of those Wednesdays, Byron had never looked over and said, excuse me, am I your boyfriend? He had never, ever asked, what exactly are we? It's a very important moment in every relationship. You've got to determine the relationship. At some point, in order to go to the next level, you've got to establish what is our obligation, what is the level of our commitment. What are we? It's the amazing thing about Exodus chapter 24. This is the moment in the history of God's relationship with the people when finally they're going to DTR. God and the people are going to determine the relationship. This is the moment when God is going to put it all out with the people and the people are going to come humbly and lovingly before God and they're going to establish the level of commitment. They're going to determine the relationship here. And it's very, very important. As it turns out, Exodus 24 is probably the pivotal moment in the entire Old Testament. This is the moment. It's the moment when the relationship between God and his people is formalized and determined. In biblical language, we talk about it in terms of a covenant. This is the covenant between God and his people. That word covenant is the same word that we use when we say the word testament. So in the Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You could say in the same way, it's the Old Covenant and the new covenant. A testament, a covenant, is simply a formal agreement. It's a formalization of relationship. In the ancient world, covenants were common, and you see them throughout the Old Testament. Covenants typically happen between people, maybe between two people who have been at war, two nations who have been at war, or two landowners who've had a dispute, and finally they will come together and determine the relationship. They will establish a kind of contract agreement together. It's called a covenant. Very important in the Old Testament. Very, very important in the ancient world. Now, as I said, most of the time a covenant agreement is formalized between two human entities, between two equals, two nations, or, or two individuals. In Scripture and in our lives, the, the most common kind of covenant is the marriage covenant. I have a covenant with my wife, Casey. It's a covenant agreement that we established, actually, at Woodburn Baptist Church 21 years ago. We formalized a relationship in a ceremony where we made promises to one another and we established the terms of our relationship. We said that we would love, honor, and cherish one another and keep ourselves only for each other for as long as we both shall live. It's a marriage covenant and she and I are forever covenant partners. It's a covenant the difference here in Exodus 24 is that this is not a covenant agreement between equals. This is a covenant. This is a binding agreement between God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. This is God here. God who is all-powerful. God who is so far beyond human beings. God who lowers himself to bind himself with people. A binding agreement with people. This is the moment when the relationship between God and the people is formalized and established with the, with the covenant. 
What are the terms of this covenant? Look on the screens with me, the scripture. First in the book of Leviticus, this is what God says. Read these words with me. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a simple covenant, but this is God's promise and it's amazing. God promises, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant. Next from the book of Exodus chapter 19. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the terms of the agreement, and it's absolutely stunning. Do you not understand that God Almighty owes us nothing? God owes the human race absolutely nothing. There's nothing we have done to earn his blessing, nothing we could ever do to make him want to love us. Do you not understand? It's simply God's goodness, God's grace. He steps down and enters into this covenant, a promise that he makes, binding upon himself, I will be your God, you will be my people, but you must obey me. You see, that's the trick there. That's the covenant agreement. I will be your God, you will be my people, but this has got to be an exclusive relationship. You can't bind yourself to me, God says, and not walk with me. You can't expect me to walk with you if you're not going to walk with me. And so God gives the law, God gives the commandments, and think of them as boundaries. This is the boundary that God lays out. And he says, this is where we will walk together. Walk between these lines. Walk in this way. And if you will obey me and walk in my way, then I will walk among you. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's like a marriage. It's a testament. It's a covenant. Now understand, in the ancient world, covenants were very, very important. And follow me here. Pay attention to Scripture. And think about other things you know about about our Christian faith here. Covenants were very important. And it was a very formal ceremony for formalizing relationship like this. Typically, in, in, in treaty ceremonies between nations or covenant ceremonies between people, they would begin with an actual recitation or rehearsal of the terms of the contract, the agreement. They would literally sit down and write, sit down and read together what they were agreeing to, the terms of the contract. That's the first step. The second step is amazing and gory. In all of these covenant agreements, the second step, the second act was in many ways the most important act. There was a sacrifice. There was a sacrifice. Always animals were slaughtered. This was such an important part of a covenant moment that actually in the ancient world, they didn't say we're going to make a covenant. They would say we're going to cut a covenant. They would cut a covenant. God is cutting a covenant with his people. And the cutting refers to the butchering, the slaughtering of animals. In the ancient world, they would slaughter these animals in a very bloody fashion. Understand this. Slaughter the animals. And that was a visualization. It was a visual way of saying, if either one of us breaks this contract... If either one of us breaks the promise entailed in this agreement, if either one of us doesn't live up to our side of this agreement, then let us be cut into pieces just like these animals are cut into pieces. 
That's the way covenants were cut. If I break my promise to you, then let me be cut into pieces just as this animal is cut into pieces. The slaughter of the animal was an important part of the covenant. After the animal was slaughtered and the relationship was formalized, then they would eat together. The the whole covenant would be sealed in fellowship. They would actually stop and, and eat the sacrifice, cook and consume and have a great feast and celebrate the relationship. It was a covenant ceremony. If you notice in Exodus chapter 24, it's a parallel kind of of arrangement. This is exactly what happens between God and his people. And it's really fascinating, especially when you think about the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate together in two weeks. We'll talk about that more tonight. Notice what happens first as they begin to enter into this covenant. God gives the law to Moses, and Moses writes it down, and he reads it to the people. And all of the people say, yes, we will obey. Yes, we will walk with you. Yes, we will do everything you ask us to do. We will be your people. Moses goes back to God, comes back. He reads it again, and he reads it again. And continually the people say, we will obey you. We will be your people. We will walk with you. They continue to rehearse the terms of the agreement, and then there is the sacrifice. And the scripture says Moses calls young men from all over Israel, a a tremendous army of young, strong men, because this is a tremendous slaughter of animals. It's heavy work, it's bloody work, and it's a big job. The young men come in and they slaughter bulls. And it says that Moses gathers the blood. I'm not trying to gross you out here, just think about what the scripture says, because the blood is important. Moses drains every drop of blood from the animals and he collects it in gigantic basins. Every drop of blood is saved. And then the important moment, the covenant is sealed with blood. Moses takes half of the blood, it says, and he splatters it on the altar. Now the altar is the part that belongs to God. So this is the moment when God binds himself in this covenant. And the covenant is bound with the blood of the animal. And the blood is splattered on the altar. That's God's part. And then Moses turns around with these enormous basins of blood. And he splatters it on the people. That's the way to kill a Sunday morning, isn't it? He splatters the blood on the people. The people stand with the blood splattered on their faces. And the covenant is sealed with blood. After that point, the scripture says, they have a meal. Moses and the 70 elders go up the mountain. They see God and they eat in his presence. I'm asking how. The fundamental principle of all of Scripture is that we can't see God. You can't do that. It's exactly what we're not allowed to do. It's exactly what we're not capable of doing as human beings. The Scripture says in the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Do you understand what that means? God is a consuming fire. That means in God's presence, you and I, we're like paper. 
And the closer we get to God, it is inevitable that we will be consumed by the fire of his holiness, completely vaporized by his ultimate perfection. We can't come into his presence. We can't look upon his beauty. God is radically other than us. God is radically holy and eternally beyond us. We can't come into his presence. We are not holy. We are not perfect. We are not worthy. We are not capable of enduring the heat of his holiness. Do you understand this? It's fundamental. We are sinners. He is a holy God. It is an impossibility that we can stand in his presence. It cannot happen. Our God is a consuming fire. Were you to gaze upon the glory of his face, you would be melted in an instant in his presence. We can't look upon him. Our God is a devouring. Our God is a consuming fire. You can't see him. You can't be in his presence. It's a basic principle of God's nature and our nature. The, The gulf between us is enormous. God, God is a consuming fire. In his presence, you would melt like wax. But the scripture says they see him. And it says it plainly. And it says it obviously because the scripture knows you and I are going to go, no way. How? Back to the scripture. What exactly do they see? Maybe this will help us a little bit. What exactly do they see? Go back with me. Verse 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain There they saw the God of Israel. It says it. They saw the God of Israel. Now listen. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. What is lapis lazuli? It's a semi-precious stone. I have chosen lapis lazuli, if you're in the sanctuary this morning, as the background for our slides. Lapis lazuli is a semi-precious stone, sort of like turquoise. And it was, uh, it was very much uh, something that royalty in the ancient world w- would have around them. It was a semi-precious stone and considered a sign of majesty. So what exactly do they see? The scripture says they see God's feet and they see something like the pavement under his feet. It's transparent. It's clear. It's like clear blue lapis lazuli, the scripture says. What in the world do they see? What do they see? What does the scripture say? What is described? They see God's feet. They see God's feet. What does it mean? I think there are two ideas here, two things I've wrestled with. Number one, I think that God's feet might be all you see when you're on your face before him. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you're on your face before God, all you would see of God would be God's feet. But but I think the scripture is describing something different from that. Notice what happens. They're describing a, a view of God from below. 
It's as if in that moment, the sky becomes transparent. It says that the sky, the pavement under God's feet is clear as blue sky, like clear blue lapis lazuli, the scripture says. It's as if there's a view from below, as if in that moment, the sky sort of opens up or becomes transparent, and they have this vision into the throne room of God. They have this vision of God. It's a vision from below. They see God's feet, and they see the floor of heaven opened up to turning clear so that they can see. It's a view of God from below. It must have been magnificent. And the scripture says there, in that view of God, they ate and, and drank in his presence. I guess the leftover question for me is, why are they given this blessing why are they given this incredible privilege? If no one on earth is ever permitted to see God and live, why them? Why now? Why are they given this blessing? Brothers and sisters, it's an important spiritual principle. Listen to me and understand what this means. They are accepted before God because of the blood. They are given access to this vision of God because of the blood, the blood that was splattered against the altar, the blood that was splattered upon them. They're given access because of the blood. It, it's a picture of what will happen finally in the new covenant when God makes new what is broken in this covenant. And when God, by the very blood of Jesus, takes away our sins, God's uh, sacrifice for our sins, Jesus, his son, who died and, and bled, and his blood, scripture says, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Christ, the great high priest, who comes with the sacrifice of his own blood once and for all to atone for our sins and gives us access so that we can come boldly scripture says before the throne of grace they are accepted because of the blood and I want you to understand that but I want you also to understand something very very simple this picture of God eating and drinking with his people this picture of intimacy and fellowship with people please understand something this is all God wants this is what God wants. The reason they are invited into his presence, the reason God brings them and lowers himself so that they can see this view of him and so that they can eat and drink in God's presence is because that's what God wants. It's all God wants. From the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, he created them for fellowship. He created them so that they could walk in the cool of the evening. God longs for fellowship with us. This is all God wants. You just got to know my mama maybe to really understand this. My mama is crazy like this. She loves us. My mama loves our family. She loves our family more than the rest of us love our family. Do you know what I'm talking about? My mama's crazy about our family. The other night we went for a meal at my mama's. It was a Wednesday night. It was supper. It was a cold night. Mom made an enormous pot of soup. And she heated it to the point where it would probably melt plutonium. This was the hottest soup in the history of the world. And she put it out in bowls. She ladled it out in bowls in front of us and watched us start trying to eat it. <laughs> I mean, it was scalding soup. And Tracy or Tommy or somebody said, Mom, this is the hottest soup. Why did you have the soup so hot? You know what my mama said? 
She said, I made it hot so y'all would have to eat slower and stay longer. Y'all know my mama? She wasn't kidding. That was her strategy. Because having us around the table is all she wants. It's all she wants. I'll be trying to leave my mama's house. And she'll say, wait just a second, don't leave yet. There's something I was going to tell you. Something I was going to tell you. You understand, I'm a 45-year-old man. I probably left my mama's house a bazillion times. And every time, she says, wait, stop. Something I'm going to tell you. She has never come up with anything to tell me. What is she doing? Trying to keep me there. Because truly, it's all she wants. I've got a son. I know what that is. It's all you want. Be together. We have this picture of God way up in heaven, up there sitting on his lapis lazuli throne saying, hey, all you earthlings, smell my feet, stay down there. Just, and that's why we think of God as if somehow God is content to be off, far off in heaven away from us. But don't you understand, this is the amazing part about God. It's all he wants to be with us. It's all he wants to tear open the curtain of heaven and show himself to us. It's all he wants to fellowship with you. Amazing part about this story is after this intimacy with God, after this amazing view of God in just a few days, these very people will be dancing naked in front of the golden calf that they made with their own hands and they call it their God. Within days, they will melt their jewelry Make a God of their own hands dance naked before it and call it their God. And the covenant is broken. Brothers and sisters, my prayer coming into worship today was that we would have that kind of view of God, that he would show himself to us because what we don't really understand is that's all he wants. He wants us in his presence. He wants us to love him so that he can walk among us and bless us. It is all he wants. And yet we will make promises to him and we will gaze into the beauty of his face and we will share the intimacy of his fellowship and we will walk away over and over and over. We walk away from him. And it's all he wants to be with us. I'm asking you today to think about your relationship with God. I'm asking you to define the relationship. I want you to ask yourself about the level of commitment that you have before this God who loves you so. I'm asking you to consider the promises that you've made to him. I'm asking you to consider after all of the ways that he shows himself to you and all of the ways that he blesses your life, how can you continue to look in his face and walk away and dance naked around the gods that you make with your own hands? How can you do that? 
How can you continue to call yourself a Christian? How can you continue to say that you belong to him when you do not keep your promises to him? When you do not walk in his ways, you do not follow his instructions, you do not put yourself under the blood of Jesus, you will not walk with him. And all he wants to do is walk with you. My friend, it's time to define the relationship. It's time to get serious about this God who has sacrificed his son for you, put you under the blood of his son so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you can enjoy the glory of his face. I'm asking you to consider the weight of your commitment to him, the wonder of his commitment to you. It's awkward, isn't it? It's awkward because after all he's done for us, we don't keep our side of the covenant. I want you to understand something. It's all he wants to have you at his table today. It's everything he wants to have you gaze at him face to face. It's all he wants. I suppose the question is, What is it that you want? What is it that you want more than him? Pray with me. Oh, glorious God. Oh, that the ceiling would simply be torn back and we could gaze up through the floor of heaven. See you on your throne, see you in your glory, looking through the transparent, crystal clear blue sky. See your glory, your face. Oh God, would that we could see you like that. It seems like if we could see you like that, we'd be different. Maybe if you would overwhelm us with your glory. Maybe if you would somehow clobber us with your holiness, Lord. Maybe then, maybe then we would, we would say yes to you. And maybe then we would walk closely with you. And maybe then we would keep our promises to you. Maybe then if you would just show us, if you would somehow come down from heaven and, and Lord, clobber us with grace. But it does not work like that, oh God. It does not work like that. You have graciously bound yourself to us, graciously coming down and offering us a relationship, paying the full price with the blood of your son that we might stand in your presence and not be condemned. Oh, Lord, we are not worthy. Oh, Lord, we don't even understand the grace that allows us to pray to you in this moment. How is it, Lord, that you could do so much for us And yet some of us will continue to walk away. All you want today, Lord Jesus, is for us to come to you. Lord, I pray today that you would get what you want from us, that you would get everything you want from this worship service, Lord, that you would have your children on their faces before you, raptured in love and grace. We know it's all you want, Lord. Let it be all that we desire. We pray in Jesus' name, but for our own sakes. Amen.